0: So, Amber, can you describe, like, what where yeah, we are and what you're seeing? We're in a barn, and there are maybe a dozen cows, a little bit more. We got some sheep. We got some really cute dogs. After I learned about Amber's story, I wanted to understand more about the baby business. So, a few months ago, I called up Amber and told her I wanted to take her on a little field trip. <laughs> that one looked a little scared. They're yeah. really cute. They're yeah. really, really cute. And on a cold winter morning, she met me at Glenwood, a picturesque farm in New York's Hudson Valley. Imagine a large red barn, rolling green hills, critters frolicking everywhere. It felt quaint. This cow, little calf is black and adorable.
1: Yeah, so um, uh, his name's Noah. His mom's name is Knight. Yes, yeah, um, he's a bull calf. Nicole Scott is the farm's livestock manager, and she knows a lot about
0: cows. Yes, if you want, yeah. So
1: big. She's a monster. Yeah, she's quite large. We weren't
0: there to just look at cute cows. We were there to talk about sperm. In addition to managing the livestock here, Nicole's in charge of artificial insemination,
1: or AI. We actually uh, we buy the semen. Um, it comes in uh, like frozen semen straws. Glenwood uses AI to breed about half its cows. That's a common practice all across the livestock industry. You can just sort of uh, like flip through a catalog almost um, and search uh, for the bull that would best match your cows.
0: When breeding season comes, Nicole picks some bull semen and pays for it. It costs about 20
1: bucks per straw. It's mailed to us um, in a in a tank um, like this that's filled with like, liquid nitrogen.
0: After that, a straw is put into a contraption called an AI gun that kind of looks like a giant syringe. The AI gun will be used to inseminate a female cow. As for the rest of the process, well, I'll spare you the details. For Nicole, this whole process starts with a really important step — getting the goods. And where do you go if you want to find the one? Well, the internet,
1: of course. So I went to the producer's um, website, and then um, I uh, went to the section titled uh, bull semen, because that's where the listing of his different bulls are. She showed Amber and I some of these websites. He literally has profiles for all the different bulls um, where their like, semen is for sale.
0: There are even videos of the bulls walking around, so a curious buyer can see the animal's bulky genetics in action. There's also a detailed description of where the bull comes from, including a lengthy family tree.
1: It usually goes back, Was it, one, two, like it's like five generations.
0: I stood there with Amber, looking through this vast family tree. This kind of information is exactly what Amber was looking for when she learned she was donor-conceived. But when her parents went to their fertility clinic to get pregnant, they didn't get nearly this level of detail. In other ways, though, I was surprised to see how similar the AI process was between humans and cows.
1: I guess, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Um, we're, we're all mammals, um, and so our reproductive systems are... You know, obviously, look very different, but it's the it's the same concept of conception. Um, it is just a little trippy to, to think of it that way.
0: After hanging with the cows and sheep for a bit in the barn, Nicole, Amber, and I parted ways. But as we were heading to our cars, I was curious: what was running through Amber's mind? What did you think of this like experience? And like, how does it make you think about your own conception and and like, you know, being a donor conceived person? When I saw the family tree on the cow's documents, I was like, like, how is it fair that this cow has like a whole family tree and I don't? It's just wild how, how differently these things are treated when it's really just the exact same thing. Um, and that by virtue of being an actual product, um, the cows have more rights. From Sony Music Entertainment and three Uncanny 4 productions, This is Biohacked Family Secrets. I'm TJ Raphael. Frozen sperm is the beating heart of today's livestock industry. But this technology also unlocked the door for something that would reshape the baby business. Sperm banking. You see, the ability to buy, sell, and ship frozen donor samples, created a global industry that would impact the lives of millions of human beings. This innovation would usher in a worldwide business that would give life to people like Amber and Caitlin, it would put money in Kurt's pocket, and it would lead to thousands of accidental discoveries on sites like 23andMe. But decades ago, before frozen sperm had produced a living, breathing person, There were big question marks all over the place. We were hoping against hope that nothing went wrong.
2: The opposition, which I was taken aback by, was religious.
0: Today, seeds of doubt and the birth of an industry. Stick around.
3: Have you found out anything yet, doctor? Yes, I have, Mr. Bennett.
0: This is an exploitation film from the late 1940s called Test Tube Babies. It's about a couple having trouble trying to conceive.
3: Well, what do you think? Does that appeal to you?
0: In this scene, the doctor is telling the couple about a revolutionary way to start a family.
3: I don't understand even yet. What is this artificial insemination thing? It consists, in effect, of removing semen from a normal, healthy man and implanting it in a receptive woman.
0: AI in humans has been around for over a century. But back in the 1940s, it wasn't exactly common. In fact, The process was a bit scandalous. But Dr. Wright, has there been much work done in this artificial insemination field?
3: I'll admit that up to the past few years, a great majority of it has been done with livestock. But the results with all sorts of animals and lately with human beings have been exceedingly gratifying.
0: Back in the day, AI was typically done using fresh sperm. The doctor usually chose the donor often a med school student. But the person had to be nearby and readily accessible for the procedure. That's because sperm dies in a matter of hours. So doctors and clinics had to work fast.
2: But where is Dr. Wright? Where did he go?
0: In order for the fertility industry to be scaled into what it is today, that ticking clock around AI had to be recalibrated.
3: Dr. Wright, how is Kathy? Is she all right? How long is it going to be? Kathy's going to be fine, George. You better get hold of yourself. Why don't you sound smoke cigarettes?
0: A lot of stuff has changed since back then.
3: I've smoked a whole pack of those things since I've been here, doctor. I'm worried about Kathy. Yes, I know. Say, why don't you run out and buy a pack of cigarettes? I haven't got any either.
0: Today, the backbone of the baby business hinges in large part on one innovation, frozen sperm. If you can freeze sperm, you can package it, sell it, and send it all over the country, or even all over the world. That's thanks to one man.:
2: At one particular meeting, the chairman, he wanted to congratulate me that I was the father of 1,500 children. I said, "You just had my wife
3: faint."
0: Enter Dr. Jerome Sherman known to his colleagues and students as Sperman Sherman, and to the rest of the world as the father of sperm banking. Dr. Sherman is 96 years old. He's retired now and enjoys fishing with his grandson, doing pool aerobics and telling the occasional joke. Thank you so much for taking time to do this today. I really appreciate it very much.
2: Well, I appreciate meeting you. I understand you're a Brooklyn girl.
0: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I actually, I, I'm a native New Yorker. I lived in Brooklyn for uh, four years. I used to live uh, in Park Slope and uh, also near Greenwood Cemetery. People
2: are dying to go to that cemetery.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sherman grew up in a working class family in Brooklyn. He was a real whiz kid. He had graduated from high school at 16 years old, and went on to get a bachelor's and master's degree in biology. What drew you to the sciences?
2: I have an inquisitive mind, and it seemed to me there were more unanswered questions in that area uh, than in other areas.
0: Sherman's curiosity led him to the University of Iowa, where he initially pursued a Ph.D. in zoology, he took on a bunch of jobs to help him pay for school. He told me he was a research assistant, a librarian, and a janitor.
2: That's what I used to answer my kids when they were in college, uh, that they had to get a job. <laughs> I said, if I could handle three, you could <laughs> handle one.
0: By the early 1950s, Sherman took on a fourth job. And it's that job that would lead him to his scientific breakthrough. Sherman's new side hustle was as a research technician for the university's urology department. This job required him to master the cryovac, a machine that freeze-dried biological tissues for scientific analysis. And it was while using this machine that the wheels in his mind started to turn.
2: I was wondering, was this particular technique of freezing ever... Used with uh, human semen,
0: the freeze-drying technique Sherman is referring to is called lyophilization, removing water from something to preserve it. He wondered, had anyone ever freeze-dried human sperm? Pouring over books in the library, Sherman found that the idea for sperm banks dated all the way back to the mid-1800s.
2: The principle was, uh, that if the soldiers would store some of their semen, and then went off to war uh, and came back and unable themselves to uh, help in procreation, that the semen would be uh, available.
0: And something else he read caught his attention.
2: Fowl semen,
0: chicken semen. In 1949, a group of British scientists found a technique to preserve chicken semen by adding this liquid, glycerol, to samples. It helped protect living sperm cells, so Sherman was intrigued. What could this do for human sperm cells? But right as Sherman found his muse, chicken semen, tragedy struck.
2: It started with a broken machine.
0: The Cryovac, that machine he'd been using to freeze dry tissue, well, it was busted. And it was crazy expensive to replace. I'm talking 2700 bucks, which was a lot of money back then. So he came up with another plan.
2: I went to the head of the department and I said, look, your machine has broken down. In order to get a new one, it's $2,700. I can make a, a lifelization machine for
0: $500. The head of the department agreed, and the new machine, it worked. So Sherman was back in business. But to keep experimenting, he needed sperm samples. He couldn't exactly go up to his classmates and say, hey, bro, do me a solid. So he had to get, uh, creative, let's say. And eventually, he started doing after-hours experiments using his own sperm.
2: I just quickly noted that there are various factors that had to be studied.
0: He did hundreds of experimental trials to figure out how to get sperm cold enough to preserve it without actually killing the cells.
2: Experimentation, by definition, is trial and error. I uh, have a bit of my nature that's stubborn, uh, and that stubbornness kept me trying.
0: Then another idea came to him, liquid nitrogen. If he used liquid nitrogen, the samples would reach a way lower temperature than they did with the dry ice. But would that be enough to do the trick? Sherman thought back to his muse, that chicken semen experiment. So he added glycerol to protect the sperm samples as he was slowly freezing them. And sure enough, it worked.
2: That was the method for preserving the human's semen.
0: Sherman had done it. Well, almost. He still needed to prove that this technique could actually produce a healthy, living human baby.
2: The only way to do that was to have insemination of that semen into a woman.
0: Coming up, Sherman's method is put to the test and stirs up some drama along the way. That's after the break. Stay with us. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The
4: Conspiracy
3: Tapes.
0: Just a few months after his experiments began, Sherman's method was ready to be piloted. But he needed willing patience.
2: I wanted to see if the survival of the Sperm cells not only had good movement, but they could
0: fertilize. So he turned to Dr. Raymond Bungie, who worked at the university's fertility clinic and had access to couples seeking treatment. With his help, Sherman got the patients he needed. Now came the real test. You see, no one had ever had a baby from frozen sperm, so there were a lot of questions. Would the babies survive? And if so, would they be healthy? Would the procedure impact the mothers carrying the children? No one knew. By July 1953, three women became pregnant through sperm frozen by Sherman's method. He waited with bated breath as the calendar turned over each month, creeping closer and closer to the women's delivery date and it was successful. And it was the first time in history
2: that the uh, frozen semen successfully fertilized and produced a healthy child.
0: How did that feel for you when you learned that your experiment was indeed successful?
2: A matter of personal pride, but more important, a matter of appreciation for the opportunities I had to be able to do something like that in my lifetime.
0: News of this scientific breakthrough hit the medical community like a thunderbolt. The esteemed journal Nature even published Bungie and Sherman's paper detailing their success with frozen sperm. Soon, they were bombarded with interest and inquiries. But despite the buzz, Sherman's breakthrough with frozen sperm wasn't actually adopted in a practical way for decades. Well into the 1970s, a lot of physicians viewed frozen sperm as an experimental and unproven method for conception. And the doctors who did use it, well, they kept the practice hush-hush. And the pushback was even stronger outside the medical community.
2: The opposition which I was most taken aback by was religious.
0: While he was still doing his experiments, Sherman made a point to consult with different faith leaders. The Protestant minister listened. The rabbi actually approved. But the Catholic priest? Well...
2: They wouldn't see me. They wouldn't talk with me.
0: A few years before, in 1949... Pope Pius XII condemned the use of sperm donors, telling Catholic doctors it was immoral, and he even argued that donor-conceived children were illegitimate. But the pushback wasn't just religious. Politicians condemned the practice, and public opinion wasn't on Sherman's side either. A national poll taken in 1953 showed that just 28% of respondents approved of artificial insemination.
2: There was immediate concern that this was uh, not a uh, proper thing to do.
0: Throughout history, scientists have pushed the envelope, and their breakthroughs weren't always accepted with open arms. Dr. Jerome Sherman was just 27 years old when he made his big discovery. And like those who came before him, Sherman forged ahead despite the pushback. He was unwavering in his belief that this technology would do more good than harm.
2: Here was an opportunity to have that on a local and a country and a worldwide level that had the potential of benefiting uh, mankind.
0: For years, he publicly advocated for sperm banking. He advised and helped set up sperm banks all over the world. Sherman continued to be a pioneer in the field of cryopreservation. He even wrote the rules for tissue banks on how sperm should be stored.
2: And that's what method is used today uh, for the preservation of semen and for the preservation of many cells and tissue. You know, there are very few scientists whoever are alive to see the benefits of their work. I feel very blessed that I was able to be alive to see my research have such worldwide beneficial effect.
0: Sherman's breakthrough laid the groundwork for the global baby business as it exists today. But he was just one part of the equation. In order for the industry to really take off, you needed patients, customers, who were willing to create their families with this brand new technology. People needed to know that this was safe, and they needed to see it with their own eyes.
4: It's hugely important to realize the hysteria that went on at this time. I mean, the process was described as Hitlerian.
0: Coming up, AI gets its primetime moment and captivates a world audience. That's next, stick around. On July 25th, 1978, Louise Joy Brown was about to make history and she wasn't even born yet.
4: It was like uh, election night on the scale of three. I mean, there was, or 10.
0: In the late 70s, Peter Williams was a reporter and producer for a British current affairs program, and he heard a story that really caught his attention. Williams learned that these two doctors were trying to help a couple have a baby using an experimental method that he had never heard of before. He wanted to be the one to cover it. The technique was called in vitro fertilization, and it worked like this doctors would extract an egg from a woman, fertilize it with sperm outside of the body, and then re-implant it into her uterus. This might seem like a common practice nowadays, but back in 1978, no human being had ever been born from this technology.
4: The public image was that a baby was going to be grown in a test tube. And uh, the image uh, didn't do uh, in vitro fertilization, any good at all. And it was uh, a media image of a baby in a test tube uh, that, in a way, couldn't have been further from the truth.
0: One of the doctors working on the technique was English gynecologist Patrick Steptoe.
4: Patrick Steptoe was a patrician. He wore a cravat off-duty. He was a fine pianist, and he owned a grand piano. He was a gentleman, and I liked him.
0: The other doctor was a man named Robert Edwards. He was an academic researcher in Cambridge.
4: Robert Edwards was a complete contrast to Patrick Steptoe. They could not have been two more different men. But they clicked, and each admired the other's skill.
0: The 1970s marked a new era for women's liberation and fertility medicine. There was a whole new movement to provide more resources for women who wanted to have children, but physically couldn't. Steptoe and Edwards wanted to be part of the solution, so the two men began to experiment. They'd been trying to successfully impregnate a patient using in vitro for years, but they'd only been able to fertilize an egg in a Petri dish. None of their patients had been able to carry a pregnancy to term. In 1976, 200 miles away from Steptoe's fertility clinic, A woman named Leslie Brown yearned to have a baby with her husband, John. But Leslie's fallopian tubes were blocked.
3: One of the hardest types of infertility to treat is that in the female where the fallopian tubes are diseased or indeed have been removed.
0: Leslie's physician told her about Dr. Steptoe, whose voice you just heard, and his partner, Dr. Edwards. He told Leslie... There's nothing more I can do here, but they may be able to help you. So the Browns, eager to have a baby, met with the doctors. And in 1977, the process began. Steptoe and Edwards removed Leslie's eggs from her body. In the lab, they fertilized them with John's sperm, and then put them back into her womb.
4: Did you have an anesthetic at all? No.
0: Peter Williams interviewed Leslie about her experience in his documentary To Mrs. Brown, a Daughter.
4: Was it an unpleasant experience?
0: No, it was marvelous. Marvelous? You know, it's just beginning of my baby. Just before Christmas, Leslie and John got the official word. She was pregnant, and they were elated. The Brown secret didn't stay hidden for long. Soon, stories started appearing in newspapers all over the world.
4: It's hugely important to realize the hysteria.
0: The doctors, the new treatment, and the Browns were all being picked apart on the world stage.
4: The process was described as Hitlerian. Press on both sides of the Atlantic were scathing about uh, Edwards and Steptoe and what they were trying to do.
0: As Leslie's due date approached, she got admitted to the hospital. She was put on bed rest and couldn't leave. When John would come visit her, he was greeted by a frenzy.
4: The press did try to get in. Uh, The story was that somebody tried to get in disguised as a nurse. In fact, somebody tried to get in disguised as a porter, a hospital Mm. porter, uh, but was rumbled.
0: Then, on the night of July twenty fourth, 1978, it was time. John had gone to see Leslie in her room, and she told him the news. Dr. Steptoe was going to perform a C-section that night. And things started to get crazy. The press descended on the hospital grounds.
4: It was like a siege. There was a feeling that there may be quizzlings inside. Uh, the hospital, and nobody could be trusted.
0: Finally, just before midnight, Dr. Steptoe started the C-section.
3: You are about to see a historic birth following in vitro fertilization.
0: This was a moment for all of humanity. A baby created outside the human body had never been born before. With the whole world watching, Steptoe and Edwards didn't just have Leslie's hopes and dreams riding on their shoulders, but the futures of tens of millions of people who would come after her.
3: Just a, perfectly normal baby. a good healthy cry. Plenty of fat underneath the skin. Good mature baby.
0: Leslie had carried a healthy baby girl, and Steptoe had safely delivered her. He described the moment Leslie first held her daughter in the documentary from Peter Williams. She couldn't
3: say anything to begin with, and the expression on her face was absolutely extraordinary. I've never felt anything like it, and I don't suppose I ever shall again. And then, after about a minute, she said, she she was looking at the baby and she said, thank you for my baby.
0: Leslie looked down at her newborn daughter, who she had carried for months. She brought her to her breast and fed her for the first time.
3: And this was, to me, a a complete moment. And it, it doesn't matter whether I ever do it again. This one woman had got something that she couldn't have had without our help, and, and this uh, was uh, really a moment of uh, great satisfaction.
0: Leslie's husband, John, waited anxiously upstairs for the news, pacing the halls. And then?
4: I hear this baby screaming her head off. <laughs> she was taken from the incubator then and put into my arms. I think I held her for about two or three minutes. And I have to give her back. You know, I'm, I'm just shaken.
0: Five pounds, 12 ounces. Her parents named her Louise. The news of Louise's birth made headlines around the world. Edwards and Steptoe had done the impossible. And even at that time... Steptoe saw that this moment could change the fertility industry forever.
3: It is hoped that centers will be set up where people have been properly trained, and this technique will become available to many women all over the world.
0: Leslie showed the world that women experiencing infertility weren't all that different from anyone else. She was earnest, sympathetic, and there were experts in the medical establishment who wanted to help her. And after all of the frenzy, Leslie had a simple wish for her daughter.
3: I'm just hoping, you know, I'll calm down so she can just live how she wants to when she's older,
0: whatever she wants. Soon, millions would follow in Leslie's footsteps The IVF breakthrough from Steptoe and Edwards, coupled with Jerome Sherman's innovation in sperm freezing, would set the stage for the rise of the global baby business. And it wasn't long before fertility clinics started popping up everywhere. Clinics that would give life to people like Amber and the people she would meet after she discovered she was donor conceived. He is a really, you know, a really rough story. I feel like all of these stories are worth telling, but his story is particularly egregious.
4: I'm the product of a
2: selective breeding eugenic science experiment. They would store the semen of the great men of the age.
4: And there was like a concrete bunker, and he opened
3: it, and you know, there was the vapors from the dry ice coming out, and, and then he just showed me these uh, vials.
0: Coming up on Biohacked Family Secrets. The rise of a new kind of sperm bank that's nothing like the ones that came before it. Biohacked Family Secrets is produced by Three Uncanny Four and Sony Music Entertainment. I'm your host, TJ Raphael. Our program is edited by Maureen McMurray. Our producers are Jennifer Siegel, Nick Mott, Shane McKeon, and Krista Ripple. Jenny Kim is our production manager, and Alicia Ba Itoup composed the theme. Our fact-checkers are Will Tavlin and Ava Behi. This episode was mixed by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. Special thanks to Laura Mayer, Nuna Sharafadine, Amy Eason, Jennifer Womack, and Allison Sherry. And also to Katie Dow, Elaine Tyler-May, and Kara Swanson, whose paper, The Birth of the Sperm Bank, was invaluable in the making of this episode. Have a question or comment about this week's show? Send me a tweet at TJRafael or email us at biohacked at 3 for 3 Uncanny 4 and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm TJ Raphael.